Welcome to my podcast, Rise and Fall of the Qing Dynasty, Cup of Solid Gold. This is episode 15, Mandate of Heaven Redux. prior episode, I talked about the treaties that resulted from the First Opium War. I also talked about the Daoguang Emperor, and that he died, and his son, Xianfeng, the emperor, ascended to the throne. Clearly, China and the Qing Dynasty were a mess. The Great Chinese Civil War, or the Taiping Rebellion, had begun and was still ongoing. In this current episode, I'm going to talk about another rebellion, the Neon Rebellion, and get to the Second Opium War, as well as a continuation with the Taiping Rebellion, and much, much more. Before I get any further into this material, it is important to ask yourself everything we've been talking about and everything that's going to come is this consistent with the mandate of heaven I think as we go through all of this history it's really important that we always ask that question did that emperor does that dynasty have the mandate of heaven and what might have the people thought about that? I think it's an important question and something for all of you to think about in terms of what we've just covered and in terms of what is coming. In 1853, an offshoot of the White Lotus Society expressed their disfaction of the events in China and they began to rebel. The events I refer to were primarily focused on decades of flooding along the Yellow River and the Qing dynasty's failure to provide relief and infrastructure to that area. Persistent flooding had destroyed China's richest area and also negatively impacted the Qing's ability to collect taxes and trade duties. Obviously, the ability to collect taxes certainly hampered the dynasty's ability to help this area and its people, so it was a vicious circle. Some have even argued that the Neon Uprising may have been a protest to female infanticide that was going on at that time due to poor economic conditions in that area. The female infanticide enormously reduced the number of females to marry. And this led to misery by the unwed males. The rebellion was another of the many peasant rebellions I have talked about throughout this podcast series. 
It began by villages being raided, and it spread to Shandong, Henan, Jiangsu, and Anhui provinces, all of these located in eastern and central China. The Neon Rebellion took place at the same time and in some of the same regions as the Taiping Rebellion. I have seen it referred as part of the Taiping Rebellion, but it was clearly not part of the Taiping Rebellion. The Neon Rebellion never really had a firm goal, unlike the Taipings. At its height, the Neons had about 30 to 50,000 soldiers, estimated. The Qing dynasty eventually defeated them in 1868, but it took some 15 years to do so. It has been speculated that if the Taipings had combined with the Neons, that might have been the end of the Qing dynasty. Of course, we'll never know that because the Taipings had an aversion to join with any idolaters, which included the Neons. But it's an interesting thought nonetheless. Contemporaneously with the Neon Rebellion and the Taiping Rebellion and the Russian issues, problems with the Qing Dynasty and Western nations and the opium trade resurfaced. It was clear by the mid-1850s, that the treaty gains from the First Opium War were insufficient and did not address all of the issues. The Western nations, particularly the English, wanted more open ports, legalization of opium, duty-free trade, an end to piracy, regulation of the coolie trade, and diplomatic ambassadors in Beijing. The Chinese, or the Xianfeng Emperor, refused to negotiate any of these desires. So to no one's surprise, all that was needed to restoke the flames was an incident or excuse, and that came in 1856. The incident is shrouded in contested facts and mystery, depending on who tells the story. The usual story is that Chinese officials boarded a ship called the Arrow that was docked at Canton, and these Chinese officials arrested and removed several Chinese they alleged were involved in the opium trade. But from there, the story is not clear. It was claimed by the English that the Arrow was an English-registered ship and that it was flying the English flag at the time that it was boarded by Chinese officials. The English also claimed the Chinese officials lowered the flag. Not surprisingly, there's another version, however, and that is the Arrow was not registered to the English and was not flying the English flag at that time and that the ship may have been engaged in piracy. Needless to say, this seemingly harmless incident 
turned into a reason or excuse for the English to push forward their agenda. The French claimed, at that same time, that they were offended by the murder by the Chinese of a French missionary in 1856. So, both the English and the French would join to assert their complaints against the dynasty. And so begins what is famously known as the Second Opium War, or also known as the Arrow War, for the ship where it began. I think it is best to fully appreciate and understand what is happening if you think of the Second Opium War as a continuation of the First Opium War with a 12 to 15 year interregnum. This is a very similar viewpoint many have made that World War II was a continuation of World War I. So with the spark lit, the English and the French began joint military operations in 1857. The Allies also requested that the U.S. and Russia help both the United States and Russia, however, just minimally helped and did not send their militaries. It did not take long for the Allies to capture Canton. And in May 1858, the Allied forces reached Tianjin and forced the Chinese into negotiations. Remember, the Qing Dynasty were largely predisposed fighting the Taipings and Neons at this time. I'm sure this was a big reason that the dynasty quickly agreed to negotiations. At the most, the Allies' fighting force numbered only a few warships and probably no more than 6,000 troops. But the Qing Dynasty were again vastly outweaponed. In June of 1858, all the parties met at Tianjin, or also known as Tianjin, and worked out the treaty bearing the city's name. The parties were, to this agreement, of course, the Chinese, the English, the French, the Russians, and the Americans. The Qing Dynasty, or I should say the Emperor Xianfeng, sent his brother to negotiate Prince Gong. Xianfeng had fled Peking in humiliation to the Summer Palace. He absolutely refused to concede or give the appearance that he was doing so. The agreement reached at Tianjin was breathtaking. Eleven more seaports seaports would be open for trade. England, France, Russia, and the United States would be allowed permanent embassies in Peking. The restrictions against interior interior travel in China by foreigners was lifted. Foreign ships would be allowed free and full access to the Yangtze River. China agreed to pay England and France 
a large amount of silver as an indemnity. And opium was legalized. After the agreement, shortly after the agreement was signed, the Allies left. Tianjin, thinking their work was done. Xianfeng, however, had no intention of signing the treaty, let alone abiding by it. For the Qing, their refusal to sign the treaty and abide by it was based on their faulty notion that their country was superior. The Manchus could only envisage the foreign envoys coming to Peking as tribute envoys, wearing Chinese clothes, escorted by Chinese officials as guests of the Qing emperor, and maybe only do this once every several years. The emperor's biggest problem with the treaty were the foreign embassies. He felt foreign embassies would damage the dignity of the dynasty. The acceptance of permanent foreign envoys implicitly meant that the Qing dynasty considered these foreign nations as equals. The emperor, in refusing to sign the treaty, incorrectly assumed that as long as the foreign nations got free trade from China, they would retreat from the embassy demand and the indemnities. However, for the foreign nations, the permanent embassies were a major issue and they would not back down from it. Once the Allies had the Tianjin Treaty commitment, they, of course, withdrew, but came back in the summer of 1859. With the Allies were their respective envoys and ambassadors to officially, formally ratify the treaty. The emperor, however, prevented them from going to Peking. The Allies pushed back and waited for reinforcements. In August of 1860, a much larger Allied force relieved the envoys and they went forward toward Peking. The Allies eventually captured Peking, plundering it and burning it along with the Summer Palace outside of Peking. It was not long then that the Qing found themselves at the negotiating table with the Western nations. These negotiations culminated in a series of meetings in Peking in October of 1860. The resulting Convention of Peking Agreement was ratified. On October 25, 1860, the Qing Dynasty settled with England. The next day they settled with the French. And the terms were that the Qing dynasty would fully abide by the 1858 Treaty of Tianjin. That the English would be ceded the southern portion of Jolun Peninsula next to Hong Kong. The Qing dynasty would pay added indemnities to both France and England. The opium trade was legalized. 
one additional treaty port was opened. And the Qing dynasty would return to France the religious religious charitable property that they had confiscated. And finally, the coolie trade would be legalized. Coolie were a sort of a Chinese indentured service put in use by Western nations. After it was all said and done, the treaties had opened 19 ports in China. And with that, the Opium Wars would come to a close. It's important to reflect a little about what just happened and put some of this in perspective. I'm referring, of course, to the two Opium Wars and the other pressures laid upon the Qing Dynasty by foreign nations. I will reflect separately about the Taiping and the Neon Rebellions in another podcast episode. Let me say this. Given everything going on in China at that time and China's situation, it did not appear there was ever an alternative for the Qing dynasty other than to reach into other than to reach an agreement and sign treaties with the Anglo-Franco demands. At no time was China effective in responding to the modern West and its industrialism and mercantilism and its military strength. While the effects of the Treaty of Nanking from the First Opium War could be accepted within the usual framework of foreign relations, within the, the comity of foreign relations, the 1858 and the 1860 Second Opium War treaties dealt a more serious blow to China's sovereignty. Beside the fact that foreign people, ships, and Christian evangelists could now roam freely in China, the treaties established a permanent diplomatic presence at the heart of Qing dynasty power. The foreign powers could now apply direct pressure on the imperial court. Superior foreign power, commercial, financial, military, military, industrial, and technological all would generally impinge upon China's traditional society, state, and culture with devastating effects. In looking back at China's weaknesses during this time, the Qing Dynasty's military weakness and administrative capacity was exposed by the Western powers and the Qing's institutional incorrect assumptions about the Western powers and how they failed to take that into context was obvious. The irony to me is that the Qing dynasty refused reciprocal intercourse with Western powers until it was forced on them by unequal force. On the other hand, in a sense, the Qing dynasty were relatively successful in responding to foreign powers. Perspective is everything. 
Unlike Vietnam, Malaysia, India, and Burma, China did not become a colony of the West. The extraterritoriality that the Qing dynasty gave the Western powers was common and usual, and a usual combination given to other nations. To our modern Western eyes, the thought of forcing China to legalize opium is outrageous. But context is important. It must be kept in mind that at the time, that time, opium was legal in most Western nations. Think about the wide use of laudanum, an opium derivative at that time. China was the outlier here. It had the full ban on opium. In the end, this period of time I just spoke about was summarized beautifully by a modern Chinese historian. And he said, the lesson from the opium wars was, if you are backward, you take a beating. As simple as that. Think about that mandate of heaven thing. I'll end the episode here. I still have much to say about what was going on at this time. The next episode, continue with our chronology. We'll finish Xin Feng's reign, finish the Taiping Rebellion, and introduce maybe one of the most influential persons, certainly one of the most famous, of the entire Qing dynasty, the Empress Dowager. So thank you. It's been a pleasure.